You're listening to the Sports Blog New York Podcast. My name is Peter Kennedy, and I am your host. In just a moment, I will be joined by my friend Gabe Allen, writer for the Lottery Mafia and the Roto-Wire, also co-authored a book called Around the League in 80 Days with his father, in which they traveled all across America to every stadium in the NBA that existed in the time in which they wrote the book, which was just a few years ago, 2015, the book came out. The book can be found on Amazon, ordered in a hard copy, paperback, read on your Kindle, all that stuff. Definitely look that up. Uh, you know, reading the description on the back of the book would even preface the conversation that I have with Gabe after, of course, we talk about the NBA Finals, the NBA season at large. We really dove deep into the NBA season and, and the Finals. Can the Cavs uh, role players help LeBron get a win or two in this series? What has the Warriors dynasty meant to the league and to us? It was a really good talk in which we got to have a nice nuanced conversation, what the sports media is known for nowadays, nuanced conversations, right? So we talked a lot about the NBA, and I apologize to you baseball fans out there who are probably sitting here saying, what about the Yankees, man? Pete, the Yankees are on fire. Or Pete, I need to sulk in the misery of being a Mets fan more. Talk about baseball. I hear you. Don't you feel left out? Don't you feel neglected? We got baseball content coming very soon. Don't you worry. But it's the NBA Finals. It's a big deal. The NBA draft is right around the corner. And obviously I had my man Gabe on, who's a big NBA uh, guy, to talk about a lot of different stuff. So we had a a touch on the NBA. It's all good. It's the Finals week. Baseball has months and months left. And uh, it's going to be coming soon. A lot of content on the baseball front right around the corner. So don't feel too upset. It's coming. Just enjoy your games, which are on every night. So you could watch the Yankees win and watch my Mets lose, which they did to the Orioles uh, while I was recording this podcast with Gabe. But hopefully you enjoy. We talked for a little bit in the order of NBA at large to the NBA Finals, then about the book Around the League in 80 Days, and we finished strong with some high-quality NBA draft talk. Definitely going to look to have Gabe back on at a later date but before the NBA draft, to really dive deep into more prospects, into more team needs, because we really did um, some top-line stuff on the draft. We talked about some of the biggest names. We talked quickly about the Knicks. So it was really good chat, and I look forward to having them on again in the future. But without further ado, before I keep babbling on for too long, this is Sports Blog New York Podcast. It's on iTunes, Apple Podcasts app, Google Play, SoundCloud, Pocket Cast, Overcast, even on SportsBlogNewYork.com. You can keep up with it. If you follow me on Twitter, that's at Pete Kennedy with two Y's. Pete Kennedy, two Y's, very easy. Or, which I assume you may know already, SportBlogNYC. You can find all of our stuff there as well. Thank you so much for listening. As always, I so greatly appreciate anybody who takes time out of their day to listen to what we have to say over here. It's a pleasure to do this podcast. I'm working my butt off to try to make it in this industry. And to each and every one of you who lends their ear and gives a little bit of a support through this journey, I appreciate you. So thank you. Without further ado, though, Pete Kennedy, that's me, and Gabe Allen, Lottery Mafia, The Road to Wire, and author of Around the League in 80 Days. Talking ball. Stay tuned. Listen.
listening to the Sports Blog New York podcast. My name is Peter Kennedy, and joining me today on the SBNY podcast, my man Gabe Allen. He writes for the Lottery Mafia, the Roto Wire, and he also co-authored a book with his father called Around the League in 80 Days, which came out in 2015, in which, at the time, Gabe and his dad went to every stadium in the NBA, checked it out, saw a game, and it sounds like a fantastic experience. We're going to talk a lot about that later. But Gabe, first off, it's the NBA Finals. Welcome to the show. Thanks for thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me on, Pete. Absolutely. So let's start here, super quick. Just how how are you feeling about the whole NBA playoff so far? Not super specifically about the finals, because obviously we're going to dive deep into that. But overall, the whole playoffs. Have you been enjoying them? Where do you land on the excitement of it? Well, yeah, the playoffs, the whole regular season, I think was way more entertaining than you know they uh, said it would be. You know, in terms of. Yeah, we all kind of figured that it would be Cavs and Warriors in the end, but I think the path that you know that it ended up going on to 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 get to here, I don't think anybody was really predicting that. So you know, even though we got what we expected, we, it's, we still kind of got there in a way that we might not have expected. So I'm 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 entertained. How about you? I, I tend to agree. I put out a tweet a couple of days ago, um, basically comparing the NBA. I said I, I like to compare the NBA to a great TV show. And basically, my three points there were, uh, first off, the finale is not always the best episode. So, And then second, the storyline, the best storylines of a great TV show do not happen in one episode of a season, or do not happen often in just one season. It happens from season to season. Mostly every great TV show is multiple seasons. And then lastly, I said, just because you want a certain ending in your TV show that you love does not mean you're going to get it. So... In that sense, I like that comparison because basically this NBA season, I agree, was fantastic. There were so many things that really did carry me through storyline-wise from day one of the season all the way until, I'll say, the conference finals. Like the Pacers and Victor Oladipo, man. I thought the Pacers, I was so wrong. I thought they were going to be worse than the Knicks this year. I remember we did an over-under pod before the season started, and I picked them to win like 30 games, and they were awesome. They almost beat the Cavs. And we almost forget now that the Cavs are in the NBA Finals, that they had them seven games and they had them on the brink. So there's all these like little storylines that kind of get lost uh, in the long, long season. But they, they were there. The rookies were fantastic. I mean, even disregarding the Donovan Mitchell, Ben Simmons, Jason Tatums of the world, there were other rookies that had great season. There's just so much to look forward to with a crazy offseason ahead. I had a fantastic time this season as well. Yeah, I mean, you said it. It's, I mean, it's kind of overwhelming just how, how much awesome was packed into this season. You made a good point uh, on the Pacers, and, and that's a great example. I mean, we also did a pod on over-unders, and you know, I, I was uh, trying to make the case that they might be a fringe, fringe playoff team, but I very quickly backed off and took the under. We all took the under, all three of us, uh, on Lottery Mafia pod. So, you know, they're a great example. So much... Uh, the Jazz. I don't think anybody, you know, was really expecting that they would be able to maintain uh, and even improve on last year. So, you know, you look up and down the league, and, and there were good storylines. Even, you know, maybe the Brooklyn Nets. They did a lot more than I think people were expecting, uh, even if they had been fully healthy. So, right. And I think maybe what gets lost here is when we're, people like you and I, who are big NBA heads, you know, we. Like I'll I'll watch a random I'll watch like Nuggets Bucks in February and be excited about it. A lot of people who are casual NBA fans, maybe they only tune into the TNT games of the week, and maybe they're only here for the conference finals and the finals. But uh, from from the entire 
uh, outlook of the league. It was a very exciting season. And then the playoffs actually had some very exciting series as well. You know, counting the Rockets-Warriors, which was uh, a weird one because of how not close a few games were, but still went seven. James Harden almost made his way, uh, leading a team to a finals, but then the Warriors obviously got out, got out on top. We had uh, the Jazz knocking off the Oklahoma City Thunder where Russell Westbrook couldn't get out of the first round. That whole implosion there with Melo, Paul George, Stephen Adams. And also, I don't know if you saw Stephen Adams liking that comment uh, about Carmelo Anthony. Did you see that the other day? No, I, I didn't. <laughs> Quick aside, I guess, here. Uh, we'll get. Well, I swear we'll get back to the finals, but... Uh, basically, there was a comment on Instagram saying, "Oh, it was, the picture was all four of them: Mello, Stephen Adams, Paul George, and Russell Westbrook." And the, you know, you know the Instagram accounts. So it was like, "One's got to go. Who is it?" And somebody commented, "We got to keep everybody but Mello." And Stephen Adams liked the comment on Instagram. And I mean, you know, he may, I'm sure he has bigger thumbs than the average human being, but that, that's a little bit of a sketchy mistake there. <laughs> well, maybe he thought he was on his burner account. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh, and. That is another wrinkle in time. I mean, you're located uh, in the Philly area. How wild was that in the past week or so? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, as much as I want to say it's surprising, it's it just, to me, it's just, I don't know. It, it's definitely surprising. I definitely, my first reaction was just like, wow, oh my God, like, oh my God. But then it's like, the more you think about it, it's like, it's just kind of indicative of like the times to me. It's like such weird times that we're living in right now. Absolutely. I mean, I like to do this exercise. I don't know if we've done it on the pod last week or not. I kind of forget here. Or if I just talked about it off air with uh, the guys from last week. But think about where we were in life last time LeBron James wasn't in an NBA Finals. Like, I hadn't graduated high school or college. Like, I I was a, a child still then. And now I'm working a job. I graduated college, all that. And LeBron James is still in the Finals. Like, what do you remember from his first trip? Or what do you even remember? How about this? What do you remember from the decision? Uh, I remember being really mad. <laughs> <laughs> like many. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I was, I was a fanatic at the time, and it was just like, yeah, I mean, I remember just being really mad. Like, I mean, I, would de- I was definitely, at that point in my life, I was definitely somebody that would argue you blue in the face about Jordan being better than LeBron. So, I mean, we all, you know, we all grow up... Uh, take some time for some of us but <laughs> yeah i mean it's so long ago it's just it's really just mind-boggling and and the fact that what five teams now have made the nba finals four years in a row and two of those teams are lebron james teams the heat and now the Cavs, and obviously the other one is the warriors so two other teams in the history of the nba have done what these teams have done now which makes it pretty remarkable uh, but let, let's take our time. Let's take the time now to dive into this series here. So obviously the Cavs are down 0-2. Uh, let's start off with that first game. So obviously LeBron James had an, an incredible performance: 51 points, eight rebounds, eight assists. He was spectacular. The the secondary and tertiary guys not as much, and that's been a theme uh, throughout these playoffs and throughout the season for the Cavaliers. So I made. A little bit of a take. I guess you can call it a take. I don't know what you want to call it. But basically, this is what I said a week or so ago. Arguing that everybody, not everybody, a lot of people in the mainstream media, a lot of casual fans will always just point to the stars, point to the stars, point to the stars. With this Cavaliers team, we've been a lot of finger pointing in the negative light of how bad LeBron's teammates are. Gabe, do you think there is a higher ceiling for this bench and the second unit and the secondary stars of the Cavaliers or have we seen the best of them right now and do you think they're going to roll over I mean we see that like LeBron can kind of 
get the most out of certain line of like Tron Lou is definitely, you know, he's very willing to experiment and, and he's going to try as many, he's going to try everything twice. And on Sunday, if there's a Sunday game, he'll try something three times or whatever point is he's, he'll give everything a try. He's going to look under every rock to try to find the right lineups. And you know, LeBron is like chameleon. He can basically just become and fill any role that he wants to. So, I mean, I, you know, I think you can never really count out a team with LeBron, you know, even, even though the team is not that great. And I think, you know, you're seeing in these playoffs that, you know, you need five guys. I mean, a lineup is five guys. You can't have a weak link. You know, he's going to get attacked. He's going to get exposed. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, obviously the health of the Warriors will, will, you know, be a factor. Uh, obviously, Clay played through ridiculous injury and we'll see how he does the rest of the series. Iguodala maybe coming back, that could be huge. But, you know, I, I think, you know, you still have that question for the Warriors. If those two guys are iffy, you know, like who's going to be that fifth guy? They've, they have, like, obviously Sean Livingston, great. Like, they haven't really wanted to push him, like, to play too many minutes. Um, which I get, you know, um, but yeah, I mean, they don't have a ton of guys. They don't have a ton as much as they have the talent at the top. It's not like, and they have plenty of good prospects, not prospects, but good players at the, at the end that are young, but like, it's not really like they're ready or they're like fringe kind of guys like to like really be like that fifth guy in the lineup in the NBA finals. You got to be a really good player. And I think the warriors in a way here kind of highlighted the importance of those role players that the Cavs are lacking. So, you know, I was basically making the point that LeBron may be reason one, two, and three why the Cavs win games, but that doesn't discount what reasons four, five, and six are for the team. You know, like, so Kyle Korver shooting, Kevin Love shooting, J.R. Smith shooting, or Tristan Thompson's offensive rebounding, those things are really important. And in the past, because LeBron was so great, because Kyrie was so great, and Kevin Love was occasionally very good, you could you can really sweep under the rug how J.R. Smith may have done or how Tristan Thompson's energy was. Now, because it's really just LeBron and all these these uh, misfits, if you will, it's way more highlighted. And because the Warriors bench is not what it, what it was a couple years ago. I mean, Iguodala was two years younger, two years younger, Livingston younger, David West was even younger last year. He's looked old this year in his limited playing time. They had the likes of Leandro Barbosa and even Harrison Barnes. They were able to pay more guys, you know. Mo Spates was always getting buckets. I think this year, throughout the playoffs, I've learned or I've been able to highlight more that these role players matter. I always try to stick up for the role players. Now, Gabe, in in the Cavaliers team right now, are there is there a specific role player or are there multiple role players who you are specifically disappointed with or who you would hope uh, get a little bit of an extra chance? Uh, well, I mean, I think Rodney Hood is the obvious answer uh, in terms of he was a really good player previously in his career, a lot of injuries, but he's been a pretty good player and then he's been really kind of falling. He's kind of fallen off a cliff since he's gotten to Cleveland and uh, Jordan Clarkson has been pretty bad. Um, I think everybody's kind of piled on that, but um, yeah, Jerry or Smith make, you know, everybody makes mistakes. It's a bad play, but I think he's a guy that you got to stick with. Um, to me, it's, I mean, to me, it's like, yeah, I mean, maybe Rodney Hood needs to get some more minutes, but it's like about finding lineups or one or two or, and like limiting the, amount of players that they're going to use and like finding lineups that work and sticking with them. So like, I don't know. I mean, love is love is very valuable for them. He's going to need to be on the floor, but like lineups that some lineups that kind of interest me are like when you have Jeff Green at the four with Tristan Thompson and then George Hill and Smith and obviously LeBron, like that's a lineup. I think that they've had, they could have some success with, 
you know, or you flop or you swap love in for, for green or something. So I just think, you know, they're going to have to really limit the amount of guys that they're going to play. Uh, or not. I mean, Larry Nance, I guess is another guy too, really who, who could, you know, they could go to him. I think he's been very spotty, but he hasn't gotten like, you know, the full, uh, confidence from Lou yet. So like, we'll see, he's definitely going to have something up his sleeve, I think. So we'll see, we'll see what kind of adjustments he's going to make for game three. I think one of the funny juxtapositions here too is the Toronto Raptors. So obviously the Cavs like ran through the Raptors like they weren't even an NBA team, but the Raptors all year long were this team that has great depth and their bench was getting all this hype and they still had Lowry and DeRozan. Obviously, you know, Valanciunas, Ibaka are are household names at this point, but their bench was getting a good amount of hype. But in contrary to the Cavs, their stars didn't exactly show up. I mean, Kyle Lowry play, played pretty well. He shot well in the playoffs. Valanciunas looked like he was their best player at some points. DeRozan seemed to disappear. And even though their bench was good, you know, it wasn't enough to get past LeBron and the Cavs. So it, it really takes both sides of the equation. It takes the role players and the stars. Uh, do you, like me, ever feel like that is poo-pooed too much in in this NBA? Because I feel like when I'm watching specifically national shows, I guess, and I guess I shouldn't expect too much NBA coverage from the national shows. Do you feel like there's too much uh, put on the stars and not enough praise given to quality role players? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's always that's always probably going to be true, especially from, you know, the big outlets, or, you know, the national media. But, I mean, I think just to take you up on your previous point, though, I think with that series you saw Dwayne Casey – you know, he's a very good coach in a lot of ways, but he's not as like willing to make changes as, as Teron Liu. And I, I would, t- I would take you to task on the idea that Valanciunas was effective in that series. I, I, to me, like he's a guy, you got to be bringing him off the bench. Like he, there was nobody that he could really cover and he was just getting exposed in that starting lineup, especially, I mean, particularly on defense, but I think you bring, got to bring him off the bench and then like hope that he can just like overpower the Cavs on the second line or something and like get a bunch of like garbage like points and stuff. Um, I think, you know, they had, they had to make a move where they're going to play like more of their guys that can, you can't just, you can't just play uh, Ananobi or Siakam. Like you got to play all these guys. You got to play Ananobi, Siakam, Ibaka. You got to get all your best defenders out there. Like, otherwise you're not going to stop a Right. Yeah. And I guess you're right. Valanciunas from the defensive end was sort of a liability at points. And offensively, I just felt like he, was one of the more or one of the uh, less scared guys. He was going at it uh, no matter what, whether he should have or shouldn't have been. I just felt like he was actually attacking and uh, was being somewhat relentless on the offensive end. But you're you're right. Defensively, he's one of those guys who fits in that Enos Cantor mold who we've seen in past playoffs who just can't be on the court in big moments in the playoffs because they they can't defend anybody. They can't get out to the three-point line and switch onto a, a guard because that's a, uh, you know, so much of this NBA's offense. You mentioned something about Ty Lue, and I kind of wanted to ask you this. So how do do you think the job that Ty Lue does is at all understood by the outside world? Do you think he gets enough credit? Do you think he gets too much hate? Do you think he gets enough hate? Where do you land on Coach Ty Lue? Because I feel like, depending on who you talk to, you can get very different responses. Well, I mean, I think generally speaking, uh, generally speaking, before I throw this out there, I think black coaches a lot of times get a really bad rep. Um, if you look across the board, a lot of times it just seems to be like kind of like, you know, especially maybe like a former player or something. They just seem to kind of like 
not really get the benefit of the doubt sometimes just from what I've seen. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm not saying I haven't been guilty of it myself, but I just, I think that's something that I just want to throw out there. Um, but I mean, I think, you know, nobody can really understand like what maybe, maybe, um, black, maybe David black can understand, uh, or, or whoever else has coached a, Le- a LeBron type team. But, you know, I don't think anybody can really fully appreciate like the job that he does. Um, yeah, you have LeBron who's like the ultimate coach. Like he could probably do like the Bill Russell, like player coach thing and like be great at it. Like they probably, I mean, but I, at the same time, I think, you know, I, yeah, I think Lou has, has been, I don't think they win that finals without without Lou necessarily. I don't think I don't think that they're have really as much as much of a chance. I don't think they maybe even make it as far as they have. It, it's it's just crazy because so many people will just love to jump to the conclusion, oh, the coach doesn't matter. Lebr- it's LeBron's team. LeBron kind of comes with his own system, which is true to an extent, especially on the offensive end. When he's in the game, he controls the tempo. He has the ball a lot. But defense matters, obviously. We, we don't see teams that have horrible defenses, I guess, outside of the Cavs all year, make this make it this far in the playoffs. So obviously something has to click from the coach there. And another thing uh, on that example is Eric Spolstra. Nobody thought he was particularly this great coach until maybe his, what, fourth final appearance in a row. And then after LeBron left and the, uh, the Heat stayed afloat, <laughs> Then people are like, oh, Spolstra, what a great coach. But while LeBron was there for year one, two, and three, it was like, get this guy out of here. Let's bring Riley back down. You know, it's really a helpless job uh, coaching LeBron James, or a thankless yeah. job, I should say. Yeah, exactly. I think you, you, what you said with Spolstra really hits the nail on the head. And I think people, you know, maybe miss the, the fact that Lou and and the Cavs, they've beaten every series has been different and they've had, he's had to, you know, use different lineups and like, yeah, you have LeBron. So it's like, you're expected to get to the finals. And it's like, if you don't, then, then like, you know, that's terrible. Whoever that, if that ever happens, you know, I'm, I'm not ruling out that he's just going to continue to rule the, whatever conference he's in and reach the finals until the end of time. But if that does, if, and when that does happen, that good chance that that coach gets fired, I mean, or whatever, you know, but you look at literally every playoff series from Pacers to Pacers was really a mix of offense and defense. You went to different lineups a lot. And then the Raptors series, they just completely torched them on offense. They just scored on them at will. And then you saw the Celtics, they had to kind of slow it down uh, and keep, so that they could keep the Celtics from playing those really small lineups. They, I mean, as good as Aaron Beans is, and you know, you, you, you're not, not going to want Al Horford playing center and, and them using all these small ball lineups. So they had to slow the game down. So I think you have to give them credit for willing to be willing to be creative, and, and you know, willing to, you know, give different guys a look instead of just oh, I'm, I have my lineup and I'm going to stick with it. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that sometimes that's not a good idea. You know, you, you should stick to your guns in a certain case, but you should also be willing to make changes when you think that it's time to. So. You know, sports is this weird thing where it's opposite from our justice system. Because in in what? The justice system, it's uh, innocent until proven guilty. Sports is very much the opposite. You're very guilty until you prove that you can get it done. Obviously, innocence isn't the the right word there. But flipping it to the sports idea, you are guilty. You are not clutch until you're proven clutch. You are not a winner until you prove you're a winner. And it seems like this is true for everybody except for the coaches of LeBron James. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's especially true for LeBron, right? So Yeah, I mean, he was like, how how much did he get criticized for not being clutch? I mean, some people still try to make that argument, which is crazy to me, but people still try to say it. 
he got crushed for the first, what, eight years of his career. Even after a ring or two, maybe, in Miami, there was lingering uh, hate about LeBron's ability or lack of willingness to take shots at the end of games. I think he should have poo-pooed all of that by now. But isn't it crazy to think back to uh, those moments where it's like, LeBron can't finish, he doesn't want the ball at the end of the games, he doesn't take the shot. What do you make of that when you think back to those moments? Yeah, I mean, I again, I was on the wrong side of history there. You know, I grew up, I fell in love with basketball through Space Jam at a very young age, so completely brainwashed in that respect. So, you know, probably probably until he won his first ring, I, I would have, you know, argued you blue in the face. And maybe even s- soon after that, I still would have probably been like, but I mean, yeah, and the idea that he doesn't want these clutch shots, I mean, that was very clearly stupid as soon as he won that title. I mean, he, that, you know, obviously that series against the Spurs was incredible. And he was amazing, and, you know, the rest is history, so... Now you're you're a little older than I am. So do you you physically remember the the Jordan years? Uh, well, I re- yeah, I remember bits and pieces of it. I remember you know, I remember being uh, about age seven, age eight, so ninety seven, ninety eight. So I, I would say those two title years. I watched you know they had a t- they had a nationally televised game. I had the VCR and the and the thing taping it and watching it and so on and so forth. Uh, I remember you know I remember. The, the the final game that that he played for that for the Bulls and and uh, some birthday event whatever something I was invited to and my I had, uh, my mom asked the people you say you're gonna they're gonna have, you're gonna just gonna be watching this game <laughs> uh, I think they're gonna be asleep but you know it's probably on nine or something ten o'clock I ain't going to that <laughs> I don't know what you guys are talking about so yeah no I mean uh, as much as anybody uh, that's I'm 27 so just. Yeah, I mean, as much as anybody my age, I guess, could have any kind of memory, like pre pre wizards kind of thing. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it is what it is. You're you're barely conscious, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you also have a obviously a father who is into the NBA and into basketball. Uh, and again, we're, we'll talk more about that book later. But again, this is Gabe Allen, uh, Lottery Mafia, Wrote a Wire. Uh, what what? Plug your Twitter here real quick so people can know where to see where you talk about sports and whatnot. Uh, it's at G Allen. Uh, that's Allen spelled correctly, like Allen Iverson, and one <laughs> one one two three. G Allen one one two three. I'll definitely post that on our site and in our Twitter, which is at SportBlogNYC. So it'll be on there, so you can find Gabe's thoughts. Uh, you know, some of the hot the hot thoughts that you throw just on Twitter, and then obviously what he writes on the Lottery Mafia and the RotoWire. Um, so let's segue quickly to the Warriors before we make m- many predictions for the rest of the series here. Where do you stand on the Warriors dynasty? And I feel pretty, I feel comfortable calling them a dynasty. You know, like I said, one of the few teams to ever be into four finals in a row. They're now on pace to win three of four, which is a very hard task. So I'll call them a dynasty. Where do you stand on, you know, A, maybe the luck of this dynasty, A, uh, B, the strength of this dynasty, and then C, moving forward, maybe how much more time they have in the bag? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, every every title team, whether it's a dynasty or one year type of thing, you're going to need luck. I think we've seen that the Warriors have. I mean, this year they definitely got pretty lucky, especially against Houston. Um, I mean, they won the series fair and square, but obviously Chris Paul going down. You know, point is that a few things go here go a different way in that series, and and they're at home. And you can say the same thing about uh, you know whether this dynasty uh, even fully you know comes together. Maybe Durant and Westbrook. Uh, pull off that win for the Thunder. So yeah, I mean, I think it's always kind of a, a tightrope walk. Uh, 
between luck and, and skill, obviously they're one of the best teams, you know, I mean, maybe the best team that I've ever seen, um, you know, play, uh, how much longer they can keep it up. Yeah. I mean, if they keep this core together and, and, and you know, I mean, obviously we're not sure how, how much longer Iguodala, guys like Iguodala and Livingston are going to be so awesome. Uh, but you know, I mean, they've done a great job of, in the past of, of finding guys late, obviously Draymond, uh, Jordan Bell, although he's not really doing much yet for him, but you know they've, they've obviously proven that they can go out and get guys. And I think you're always always going to have some some good vets that that might be willing to take a little bit less money. But you know if they can keep their core four guys together, and you know kind of retool as Iguodala and Livingston get older, then yeah, obviously they can keep winning. Um, I mean, if they also you know obviously a lot of ifs. There's always a lot of ifs, and and luck falls into that. So. But yeah, they're they're amazing. I mean, you'd be crazy not to say so, right? I I, I tend to agree. And is there a moment that you remember specifically? Maybe I, I assume it's probably before the seventy three win season, but maybe in those first two title seasons where you were like, "Holy crap, this team's on another level." Just even maybe their style of play, the Steph Clay combo. Was there a moment where you're like, "Holy hell, these guys are crazy, <laughs> crazy good." Yeah, I mean, I guess just that that whole se- that really that whole season, that first season that they won it in 2015, 2014-15, just ridiculous. I mean, in a way, it's kind. Of, I mean, we still get to see the flashes of of you know Curry just going crazy, which to me, like that was like really really fun to watch, and like that's like the one thing that I kind of get where it's like people are like, oh, like I kind of miss like seeing that Curry. Like we do get to see it still, but like you know, like the, just how ridiculous that team was like when it was first kind of like coming onto the scene. Yeah. It was just like, Holy cow. Like this is ridiculous. They seem to be doing things that we just weren't used to Uh, the way they shot threes. You know, a guy from my childhood who I remember, like obviously, obviously I remember his game a little bit, but I wasn't super, super aware. I wasn't doing a podcast in, in sixth grade talking about the NBA at large and this and that. But I remember Gilbert Arenas and he was a guy who I felt was a, just a free chucker. The guy was not afraid of any shot. He never saw a shot he didn't like, and he was damn good. He was shooting, you know, scoring twenty eight points a game or whatever he was doing back then. He was a guy who I felt like would take those really deep threes and take risky shots. But then when I saw Steph do it and the consistency he did it, he did it with, and even the the way he did it without the ball so much was like nothing I've ever seen before. And the way they move the ball, the way they shoot the three ball, was just insane to me. And I remember. I was a senior in college, their 73-win season. Or maybe I was a junior. I forget now. Whatever. Uh, I was in college, and I'm staying up late on the, for these West Coast games, just physically jumping out of my seat because yeah. of how ridiculous these shots are. And I remember thinking back then, I was like, you know, he, he's like the little hero right now. He's the little engine that could. He's the underdog. He's been injured. Now he's coming back. He wins his MVPs. He wins his championships. And I, I, I hate to say that I kind of knew this was coming, but I knew the hate was around the corner. Where do you stand on the pushback that Steph Curry has now been getting? Uh, I've found it more over these past couple weeks. You know, people are getting more a little more angry about the shimmies. They think he's a little arrogant. They don't think he's Mr. Nice Guy anymore. Where do you land on Steph's, you know, persona and how the public is starting to view him after all the success? And also, I should say, I don't know if you have you heard this hate, or it might just be me who's hearing this. Because... No, no, it's yeah, no, I hear you. Um, yeah, I think. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're gonna. You, I was on the other, like I said, I was on the other side, kind of of history, where it was like, I was not like that. 
I was not that much a fan of the heat, you know, for instance, coming together. It's just like, I get like the other side of the coin. It's like, okay, like, you know, I get why people are, I think a lot of it stems from that, from the whole, like, you know, Durant going there and then they have this amazing team and, and people are thinking like, oh, well, it's a sure thing that they're going to win, even though obviously it didn't turn out to be that way. But I mean, I get that, like that angle, but like, I mean, come on, he's, he's been doing the shimmying and all this stuff. This is Steph Curry. It's always been Steph Curry. So like, if that's, what's the deal, then it's like, that would have been a problem a long time ago. Whereas like, I mean, if there's anything that's like annoying, like to me, it's like, I don't know, I will say he does get like an awful lot of calls sometimes, like in terms of like, uh, him and every, every superstar, but it's just like, I don't know, at a certain point, it's like the whole, like draw the foul game. Like, I don't know, like to I guess I shouldn't go Jeff Van Gundy here on this podcast. No, do it. Go full Van Gundy. <laughs> no, but it's just like when you go, when somebody goes up to like contest a shot and then they land and then like they're on their feet and then like, then you jump into them. It's like, come on, like the guy's there and he's existing. Just let him exist. Like if you're going to jump into the, to the defender when he's in the air and take the, take that contact like that, then fine. If you want to get wild like that. But it's like, come on, it's like such a it's such a weak cop out. That sometimes I will say can bother me. But I mean, this is like, so you know, who's not doing this in terms of like the a lot of you know a lot most elite players are getting these kind of calls. And I think it's something that definitely needs to be addressed. So I mean, I think you know some of it's the ticky tack calls, but I think a lot of it's like, you know, just the, the Warriors and and everyone just not you know, not liking them. So I won't use hate. But yeah, probably hating. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess they have the one guy who, I guess you know, brings on the pushback. Draymond Green is all about it. He'll take he'll take your hate and make you double down on it. And then Steph and Clay, before Kevin Durant got here, were there like these likable guys running around shooting. Obviously, the word snake comes into play when Kevin Durant decides to join the Warriors, pissed off a lot of people. They thought it was going to ruin the NBA, which I would argue against, but we're not going to go too deep into that conversation right now. But it, it also just makes sense, you know, when a team is that successful for a period of time, the people who were quiet in the beginning, who just maybe didn't care one way or the other, are going to start to either love that team or really not like that team. And, and that's just kind of how it goes across all sports. I mean, look at the Patriots. I doubt after the Patriots' first Super Bowl with Tom Brady, that everyone was like, oh, s- screw those guys. They like they weren't winning all the time yet. They were kind of the underdog at that point. But now they've won five Super Bowls in the past, whatever, 12 years, whatever it is. And it's like, God damn, I wish those guys didn't win all the time, you know? So I guess it's natural. Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess it's just like, to me, it's like picking and choosing like what you're going to be mad about in life. It's like, and we could get it, we'll get a little bit deep now on this, right? But no, I mean, it's just like, it's supposed to be something that's fun and like, I get that, like, maybe you might not like it, but, I mean, I don't know. Just, to me, it's like, we got to pick and choose things we're going to be mad about in this life, and, you know, these weird times we're living in, it just seems awfully silly to, like, for that to be, like, something that you're really going to spend time being pissed off about. Like, for me, anyways. That may be one of the more profound things said on this podcast ever. (laughs) I don't know about that. No, but it is true. I I personally like to talk about all this stuff, but I'm not somebody who gets like irate watching games, you know. It, but it does sound to me like you don't particularly love watching James Harden. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but just based off what you said a minute ago. It oh, makes- he, he won. Uh, first of all, full disclosure, I I love Draymond, but I will say James Harden emphatically won me over with that smash on Draymond in the conference finals. Oh. I think I rewound that and replayed it maybe 50 times. It was so exciting. That, no, was, I, that was great. 
<laughs> no, I mean, I will say, yeah, some, some of the stuff that Harden does, it's like, you know, I mean, I get it. It's like a skill, like, like baiting and like getting the foul. But like, again, at, this, at a certain point, it's like, all right, like you're really initiating all this contact to me. It's like, it comes down to like, okay, this is a foul or it's not a foul. Like I just, something sometimes to me is just like, all right, come on guys. Like, let's just play the game and like, stop calling all this stuff. It's ridiculous. I know Clay had a shot in the most uh, game two, the the most previous game where he really stepped into the contact and they called a foul, and it's like, oh man, the really frustrating foul call. And as a as a consumer just looking for a good game, you can be frustrated. You can be like, I want this to be more packed with action, less stoppages, and not for silly fouls like that. And but then you're like, all right, whatever. They call it all year long. You got to live with it. What then becomes more frustrating is then when somebody on the same team or the other team, in this case it happened to be LeBron James, basically did the exact same thing that Clay did a quarter later, and they didn't call the foul. And that's where Van Gundy, I could just hear him like pulling a little <laughs> bit of his, with a little bit of what's left in his hair, I could hear him pulling it out, where he gets so <laughs> annoyed with the lack of consistency, with the silliness of the rules, and I really, I feel it on a personal level. And that's why when you said, I don't want to go full Van Gundy here, I was all for that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a big rules guy in general. I think the rules should make sense. Really, I know that's a hot take. That, 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 yeah, I'm going to put the quote on the tweet for that one. I think rules should make sense. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I kind of lost a train of thought there. No, yeah. wait, actually, wait, this would be a good time for us to revisit this real quick before we, we start <laughs> to move on. How did you feel about the rule being put into play with the whole restricted area charge block foul in the end of game one? Oh wow, yeah, I, that was really shocking. I was there's no way I was expecting that to happen, uh, the the reversal of the call. That was really shocking to me. So, yeah, I really don't even know what to say about that. That was so mind boggling. Like again, it's like I, before we. I mean, I'll come back to that. But yeah, to me, it's just like with with the calls. It's like I mean, free throws are just so boring. Like nobody tunes into a basketball game to watch free throws. So it's like when you're using like these rules to like, you know, have these, have these weird fouls and it's like, come on, like, we just want to see you guys go up and down the court and play the game. Like, I don't know. I just couldn't believe, you know, a lot of people were on, on the side of, I think they got the call right in the long run. And to me, I was kind of like, I don't really care that they got it right because I just couldn't believe that they flipped it. Like, I just could not believe that they flipped the call in that moment because the rule allows them, yes, I get it, but at the same time, it, it felt like one of those football calls where it was like play stands, you know, not play confirmed or not play reverse. It's just like, eh, we couldn't really tell, so we're just going to leave it. And that, that's what it felt like to me. I, I was really shocked that they changed it over. Um, all yeah. right, well, do you have a uh, last thoughts on that before we make predictions? Oh, yeah, just, I mean, rule interpretation. <laughs> but no, I mean, I, to me, I thought he took the hit in the chest. I thought it was a charge. I was really shocked by the call, but that's just me. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, for real. And that's, and that's the crazy part, too, because you are, you are not wrong. By no means are you wrong. But then there are some people who really strongly believe they got the call right by changing it. And when that happens, that's why I'm saying put your hands up and be like, yep, we called it on the floor, and that's what it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. But uh, apparently not, and uh, may have changed the whole series. We not, we will never know. We we will never know. But anyway, game three is tonight, being that this podcast will be released on Wednesday. We're recording on Tuesday evening, uh, so we're speaking now. But what do you think is going to happen tonight in game three? Uh, there will be a basketball game. 
uh, and one team will go home happy and one team will not. You are not wrong, my friend. Um, <laughs> uh, what do I think is going to happen? Well, what do you think is going to happen? I think, well, let me start by saying this. The spread is currently sitting at four and a half in favor of the Warriors, right? So I try to use that even if, uh, you know, who needs to know if I'm actually gambling or not? No one needs to know that. But I like to use the spread uh, just as a guide of what Vegas thinks might happen because they seem to get some things right here and there. I don't, I don't think it's going to be particularly close by the end of the game. I think we're going to get one of those games where the Warriors, kind of like in game two, are doing all right, but the Cavs are hanging around, but they still win by 10. The Warriors are, are that team to me where it's like, even we either lose or win by double digits. That's how I feel with the Warriors. So the four-point spread is either like, all right, the Cavs are going to win by like five, or the Warriors win by 15, and I don't see much of it in between. Like, I, When do you get to see the Warriors play a five-point game where they come out on top? It's, it seems rare for me. So I think I think uh, best ch- chance is that the Warriors win big. Uh, lesser chance Cavs actually take this one out. Yeah, I guess I'll agree with you there. Um, I mean, yeah, going off the lines, uh, I think it's always a useful thing to look at. I was actually pretty surprised. I think it was like 12 and a half or 13 or something before the second game. Yep. With, with, and with Clay, you know, being what he was and no Iguodala, I thought that was fairly high, but obviously it turned out to be a blowout, right? They, well, they won by more than that, I think, right? Yes. Right? Uh, they, cover, they cover the spread for sure. Well, it might have been 18 or something like that. I forget. Yeah. I have it up over here. Yeah, well, 12, 18, whatever. But anyways, yeah, I mean, I think four and a half is, uh, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty close. I, I mean, let's hope. Yeah, let's hope that, let's hope that Vegas is on to something here. I mean, if you like close basketball games, which I think we all do. Absolutely. So if, uh, let's, let's make, let's make uh, another prediction here. One more prediction and then we'll move on. Who is the Cavs role player? that steps up in this theoretical Cavs win. Let's take out Braun, obviously. We'll take out Kevin Love. Who's that third guy, maybe the third or fourth guy, who uh, makes a big difference in Game 3, helping the Cavs win, if they so do? Um, I guess I'm here for a JR redemption game, but I'm going to say I'm gonna say maybe Larry Nance. I'm going to say maybe he gives them something off the bench, um, and, and you know he maybe swings the tide, and... You know, if the if the Cavs can maybe keep some of these big lineups, maybe they force the Warriors to play some more some more of their big men. Keep Kevin Looney out there, uh, Kevon Looney out there. Keep Jordan Bell, keep Javale McGee, keep David West or whoever one of these guys instead of going and running more of their small ball lineups. I like that. I mean, like you said, Ty Lue is the type of coach who's going to try something. And you know, if the Warriors are going to go small, maybe you got to go. Maybe you got to go big. Maybe don't fight fire with fire. Maybe switch it up on them. I don't hate the idea at all. What I'm going to say is I was listening to the beginning of the game two on radio, at least like the half first half of the first quarter. So I heard the pregame on radio one night I was driving home. And John Barry in the pregame basically said as his like hot take of the pregame that Rodney Hood was going to be a difference maker. And he only ended up playing four minutes. So I'm going to double down on John Barry's take from game two. And I think Rodney Hood plays. You mentioned him earlier that he's been one of the bigger disappointments for this team. He can score the basketball. He can put the ball in the hoop by himself or by uh, the catch-and-shoot. So Ty Lue is going to say, you know what? Jordan Clarkson has been basically atrocious in this series. He hasn't helped us much offensively or defensively. Let me take a swing on Rodney Hood. Maybe he'll hit some shots, and that's what I'm going to go with. 
It's probably a better answer than mine. Yeah. I mean, Larry Nance, he has shown the ability to do important things like offensive rebound, energy, disrupt some shots here and there near the rim. I mean, sometimes. not That's not his best strength. But really, realistically, Tristan Thompson, Larry Nance, and Kevin Love, if they can get offensive rebounds, that's kind of how the Rockets stayed in some games, right? Wasn't that part of the blueprint? Definitely, definitely. No, I think, you know, I hold Larry Nance is, is a decent take, but I think doubling down is always a good take. So, so. <laughs> I like that. Um, all right, great stuff. So Gabe Allen here. We're talking NBA Finals. Uh, well, we just talked NBA Finals, I should say. And now it's to move, time to move on. We're going to talk about the book that you and your father co-authored. Um, so it's called Around the League in 80 Days. Basically, in a nutshell, you and your dad traveled to every stadium at the time uh, in the NBA and witnessed a game. And you wrote about it. And you wrote about the in-between, the traveling, about your you and your father uh, who who's called Bubba in the book? Is that uh, the yes. name your dad goes by, even to you and your sister? Occasionally, it's a nickname of sorts. Uh, so how how does one get the nickname Bubba? I'm very curious. Uh, when you have all kind of random nicknames, you know, some of them stick and some don't. Uh, I couldn't really say. Fair enough. Honestly, no need. With a man like your dad, who I've uh, had the pleasure of meeting once once before. He just like he looks like a fascinating man. He sounds like a fascinating man. So you, you, no need to explain any nicknames for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So start off with what the journey was like overall. How did you get around? How much did you fly? How much did you drive? I know it said r- a lot of road tripping in the description of the book. So what what was uh, what was the whole journey like as far as traveling? Well, it was awesome. We were, and we were really lucky in terms of weather and stuff. Uh, you know. It, Another winter, maybe this winter we probably, probably wouldn't have been so lucky or something. Maybe, maybe we would have gotten stuck somewhere. Or, I don't know. But uh, we, we drove pretty much everything. The only flight we took was from uh, Portland to Minneapolis. So we cut off about, it would have been like maybe, I don't even know, 24 to 36 hours of driving or something. So that was going to be a longer drive. But uh, everything else we, we drove, we, we went, we began in Cleveland uh, and we did a little loop up uh, Cleveland to Detroit, and then in Toronto. And we went straight to Boston. We saw New York, Brooklyn, Philly, and then we began uh, south and eventually west and up north and all the way around like a circle. All right, so let's start off here. I know <laughs> you know we were chatting about this earlier, and you uh, didn't want to call out my, my whack questioning, for lack of better terms. <laughs> so I'm going to start off with the one that you said was a, was a fine question that you were ready to respond to. And that is, what is a low light of this trip? Because obviously you're on the road. You're, you're traveling for obviously 80 days, slightly plus. Uh, what was a moment where you're like, Hold, like, what is going on? Like, Where am I? What day is this? What was a low light from this trip? Yeah, so low light, you know, we, you know, we were eat, eating, you know, not that great on the on the road and stuff. We were eating a lot of grocery stuff when when we could, but a lot of times you're moving through one place to another. We were just eating whatever, and uh, you know, so eat being that way and, and all the traveling and all the everything, you're bound to get sick at some point or, or something. So uh, getting to getting to be that way a little bit uh, as we're getting into Texas and moving on into and getting into Houston. So. We're in Houston, and I wake up the the first morning overnight, uh, having slept, and just have been assaulted by mosquitoes. Oh, terrible, boy. terrible experience. Yeah. So if you ever go to Houston, 
Uh, you better walk right. That's what Bob Dylan said. But <laughs> if you ever go to Houston, you better you better put some long sleeves on or get some really mean bug repellent or something. And did that did that affect your viewing experience later that day? <laughs> it, it did not. It did not. I had a very pleasant time in Houston. Uh, they gave out uh, beard hats, uh, beard be- beard uh, attachments and hats. Uh, Maybe we've lo- probably lost them since, I'm sure. But Was that the first year of, of James Harden in Houston, or was that the second, maybe? Uh, he, no, definitely not the first. Definitely not the first. Um, but, yeah, I, I, remember, I remember going to, I remember going to, to a drugstore you know, and, and asking a, the pharmacist or something, hey, you have any suggestion or anything? And, and her reaction, it was like I had really scarred her. She said, and she said to me, she said, I've never seen anything like that. Oh my God! So uh, maybe the the blood you brought up from from up northeast over here just wasn't <laughs> wasn't sitting right down there. <laughs> something, man. Something. I don't know. Is that one of those looks where it was like, well, this is an outsider. He's not from around these parts. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yeah. Then eventually you're throwing on the long, long sleeves when you're out in public. I didn't want to scare anybody at the Rockets game. You know. So. <laughs> how, how often in all these different cities? Uh, did you get that look of like, all right, this guy's not from here? Well, yeah, I think it depends what you're wearing. You know, sometimes we'd be wearing some kind of, T- you know, TCNJ. Shout out to TCNJ, the College of New Jersey. Shout out. Uh, yeah. Uh, sometimes we'd be rocking like that classic TCNJ blue uh, uh, zipper jacket. So, so, you know, that would be sometimes we'd get New Jersey. Actually, somebody in New Orleans said that to me. Yeah. It's like, Okay, you, you got new in your name too. What's this? Well, I don't get it. What's the deal? <laughs> uh, you know, it, it must be nice. I know for for me, just you know, scrolling through the ESPN NBA scores on a specific night, right to the right of uh, the spread or whatever the preview button, it has a the ticket prices, tickets starting at, and I'm always so shook when I see <laughs> how cheap tickets are around the world. Because I'm, you know, I'm a New Yorker. I work in New York every day. I used to work right across the street from MSG, and those tickets are insanely expensive, even if it's freaking. Knicks versus the Pelicans. I went to a Knicks Pelicans game uh, two years ago when Derrick Rose didn't show up to the game, and like it must be nice, kind of. Bit, what do you pay? You pay like twenty bucks for a ticket in New Orleans and sit in the first section. <laughs> yeah, well, we we purchased the tickets ahead of time, so you know we probably could have ended up getting a little bit cheaper. We probably could have gotten cheaper tickets various places. So yeah, it's something that probably could have taken advantage of more, but. uh yeah, I mean, plenty of cheap, plenty of you know, twenty bucks or wherever. A lot of places have that kind of already. You know, uh, not every. You know, obviously, Madison Square is one of the more expensive uh, arenas to attend the game. So, yeah. All right, wait. I have, I have a couple questions to throw at you here. Sure. And uh, I didn't prep you on these, so just do your best and All right. give me the give me the real. First off, is there a player who you saw in person for the first time? that really stood out to you? Because, you know, obviously watching somebody on TV is one thing, but seeing them actually move in person is a whole different thing. Is there one player that you saw on this journey that really wowed you or really caught your eye? Wow. Uh, I mean, it would, have to, it would have to have been somebody from, like, the rookie class or something. Uh, I can't give you a very good answer. I mean, you know, I, I had always been going to games, too, so it's not like, I mean, I'm trying to think. Let me come back to that one. Okay, yeah, because I will preface, that's fair, you you do, uh, you do were a Sixers season ticket holder for much of your life, right? So you probably saw a lot of players come in and out. That is fair. Maybe I maybe I did uh, 
unfairly asked that one. That's fair. <laughs> um, oh. All right, and I have to. I do have to ask the very basic question. That is, what was your favorite stadium? Uh, well, my favorite stadium. Uh, I well, I'll I'll abstain from now. I'll say I don't have a favorite stadium, but the best stadium on earth, you as you know, is Madison Square Garden. Shout out. Uh, you're just, are you just saying that because you're on the sports blog New York podcast? No, I I I mean, there's some you know obviously there's something about the parquet floor. There's something about every stadium that's unique and 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 really awesome. Uh, but I mean, just some, I don't know something about Madison Square is is just really mind boggling to me. You know, obviously you have Penn Station, and then it's like just like underneath that, and it's like this just so. Or I mean, on top of that, it's like just unbelievable. It's like, and you know, to me, there's not really a bad seat in the place. I agree. Shout out to the Mecca. That's why they're all, I guess that's why they're all uh, so expensive. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. What about this? Last question on this. We got to talk five minutes of NBA draft. What fan base was the most like electric? Who was the loudest? Who had the craziest chance? Who was the most aggressive against uh, the opposing team? Which oh, fan base okay. was most fun? Oh, well, yeah, I guess it just depends which, which, ad- which adjective you actually want to settle on. Uh, craziest craziest i would say probably houston houston was nuts i mean granted the game came down to the wire and and they lost a very close game and and there was a you know questionable series where where harden was driving to the basket and, and everybody wanted a foul so uh you know hundred hundreds of houstonians harmoniously hollering bullshit is something to behold yeah quote from the book and so. I, I guess uh, history repeats itself with James Harden looking for a foul call in a big game. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, any any just absolute stinkers that you have uh, in your memory? Like any games that were just 30-point blowouts and you're like, holy crap, couldn't have seen a worse game? Uh, yeah, I mean, we saw some blowouts, I think. But, you know, they were still enjoyable. Even even if the, some, of the, some of the blowouts were really enjoyable, I would say. Uh Something about the acoustics of the Utah Jazz Arena. They they smothered the Charlotte Hornets. I think they were up by like 30 in the first half or something. The place, I don't even know how to explain it really. I feel like I must have been tripping or something. <laughs> the acoustics in that place are just insane. Oh, and another fun fact about that place, uh, you're seated in the upper deck. You can see, uh, the, you can see the snow-capped mountains from your really? seats. Wow, that's pretty neat. Moreover, for, for those who care about what they eat, is the only stadium uh, in the NBA that you can get, you know, a banana uh, that I saw. That that you could, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I took a lap around each stadium. It's possible that I didn't notice it somewhere. If that's po- if that's happening, I apologize. But only place I noticed where you could get fresh produce and so on and so forth for, for reasonable price inside the jazz game. So interesting. See, this, interesting. this is what I was looking for. These are the questions that I needed to ask the whole time. <laughs> I was missing the spot. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, and if you want to buy the book to the listeners here, Amazon, Around the League in 80 Days, boom, right there. You can get a paperback or a hard copy. Or you could even <laughs> Kindle that thing. I've seen it out there. It's on Amazon, so check it out, Around the League in 80 Days. Uh, quick, Gabe, before we go, let's talk about the NBA draft for a hot minute. I know... Last year, uh, a couple, well, I guess, yeah, last summer, a few months away from now, uh, was the Summer League. And you wrote an article about the Summer League and what guys you saw, what guys you liked. Uh, yeah, I, remember, I think you, I'm pretty sure you were pretty high on Donovan Mitchell at that moment. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I liked him going into the draft, but once I saw him in the Summer League, I was like, I mean, I think in that article you're referencing, I made some really bold uh, 
statements where basically I said that Donovan Mitchell can forget can help Utah forget all about Gordon Hayward. So I'm not re- I'm not right very often. Uh, but when I am, I like to bring it up a lot. <laughs> well, you didn't even bring it up this time. I did. So no worries. Well, uh, I could have I deflected and, and, and gone to something else. But yeah, uh, as far as this draft goes, I mean, yeah, I think obviously you're trying to find like who's going to be kind of like, you know, that maybe that Donovan Mitchell type of guy, like as like a guard guard slash wing kind of guy who can break out. Um, but, you know, to me, this this draft class is all about the bigs. You have all these bigs, so many of them highly rated. And it's like, you know, every draft, no matter big or bigger or small or what, right, so many guys are built up and, and, and good. Yeah, we should be celebrating, you know, these guys' accomplishments and, and building them up. And, you know, but not everybody can, can be the best version of, them, of themselves. And sometimes the best version of yourself is, isn't good enough to be, you know, a stud in the NBA. Like, not everybody can be the best at the end of the day. So, I mean, I think when you're looking at this draft coming up, it's like all these big guys, like, which ones are going to, I mean, maybe they all hit, maybe I'm wrong, but you know, which guys are going to hit and which guys are, are really suited for this, for this modern NBA where, you know, we're seeing that the big guy, big guys, you know, Embiid obviously is great. You know, there, there are plenty of exceptions, but like, you know, a lot of these guys don't have really great uh, defensive reputations at this point, uh, exception being Jaron Jackson, I would say, and maybe Bamba. Um, but, you know, a lot of these guys don't really have a defensive reputation and you're seeing like year after year more proof that it's like okay teams that have these have big men that are not really doing it on the defensive end it's like okay they put up their 20 and 10 or whatever and it's like but the team's maybe not going to be winning so like i mean you look at a guy like carl anthony towns and it's like okay well he was a really good defender in college and he hasn't you know that's kind of the joke on him now is like oh well he he's not good on he's not going to defense it's like so it's like, uh, how many of these guys are going to pan out on, de- on the defensive end? It really becomes an interesting conversation because think about the top five will likely include at least three, probably four of these people. DeAndre Ayton, Jaron Jackson, Mo Bamba, Marvin Bagley. And then uh, there's even the Wendell Carters, who's most likely a top ten. And then you have like the stretch guys like Michael Porter. And I may be forgetting one off the top of my head. Uh, but... Marvin Bagley is such an interesting example for me. Dominated college, just looked like he was on another planet, dunking on people's heads, rebounding fantastically because he can jump through the roof. He doesn't exactly seem like he can fit in the modern NBA. He has a weird-looking jump shot. He only uses his left hand. He wasn't specifically a strong defender, mostly just making, uh, making the best of his athleticism against lesser athletes in college. Is he a guy who you see his skill set and it excites you or it makes you nervous? Because I kind of feel like he um, embodies the, the basically the talk of what is a modern big. Yeah, I'd say there's a little bit of that with, with, with pretty much every prospect, with the exception being Jackson, Jaron Jackson. I'm all in on Jaron Jackson. Um, but, I mean, I think all those guys, but we'll talk, we'll talk specifically about Bagley. Yeah, I mean, I – in my draft profile that I wrote on him, the three guys that I comped him to were low, low end would be like Beasley, which you alluded to, you know, kind of just dominating against lesser, uh, athletes in, in college. Uh, so, and obviously being a lefty and, and, uh, so, uh, yeah, all three of those guys are lefties. I think the fat, fat young is good, is a good, uh, would be a little bit more optimistic kind of thing. He's a lot, he's a lot bigger than him, but I think he might be more of a guy that, we'll see if he's going to turn into a four. I don't know. I mean, a guy like Thad Young has really retooled his game over the years and he was a big part of the Pacers, you know, exceeding expectations this year. I think 
But like, I mean, again, like nobody, I mean, not nobody, but I mean, is Thad Young going to be, I think he was a fringe, very fringe lottery pick, like 15 or 16, something like that by this, whatever, somewhere in that range by the Sixers. He might've been even a lottery pick, but you know, are you going to be happy with taking Marvin Bagley if he's, if that's his uh, ceiling, if he ends up as Chris Bosh, which I mean, again, to me, I mean, and that's, this is not something that I was following. I was not so much into college and, and following like the draft and stuff like at that young age. And not even that much until recently, honestly. But like, if if Bosch is within the realm of outcomes, which I think it might be. I mean, he. I don't think he was a really great defensive prospect coming out of college. Maybe I just didn't. Maybe I, you know, don't really know. But right. uh, you know, when he was and when he was in Toronto, to me, it was never like, oh, well, Chris Bosch is this great defender. And like, you know, I think people were also, again, like you said, hesitant to like give him that credit. It's like you have to, when, you know, once you've proven it, then you know, instant until guilty kind of thing. So, I mean, I think if, if he can like get to some kind of Chris Bosch level, then like, yeah, then that would be amazing. But I think, you know, the percentage outcome on that is probably not that high. I would, I would probably put it, I would probably put him closer to Thad, like just in my opinion, I'm probably, I'm probably lower on him than most people. You know, it's funny. I, I actually, I've been finding that more people are, more people are saying, I think I'm lower on him than most people because that's how I feel as well. And that's kind of why I brought him up because I think he embodies this this debate of what a big needs to be good at. And you look at Wendell Carter who played next to him. Wendell Carter's ceiling may not be as high or his uh, potential may be a little bit more uh, held together, right? Like the variance may not be as high. But what does he do on the court? He protects the rim better. He's bigger and stronger. He seems to be a better passer. He uses both hands. He's not this explosive athlete. But it seems like his bust potential is much lower because he has a role in the NBA. But you don't want to take Wendell Carter in the top five. You're happy if you get him seven through ten. Bagley's this guy who's most likely going to be taken top five and is going to have the top five expectation. And that's where it gets so tricky as well. And you've been mentioning Jaron Jackson. I'm going to guess that you are a fan of his and uh, his skill set. Yeah, to me, I think you know the the conversation is really centered around Luca and, and DeAndre Ayton at one. But to me, it's like you look at the Suns. It's like, okay, they have Booker, they have Josh Jackson, they have, I mean, to a lesser extent, TJ Warren, he had a good season this year, but I mean, you have, not that you can never, not that you can never get a, I mean, you can never get enough ball handlers. You can never get enough guys that can make things happen with the ball in your hands. I'm not ruling out, uh, Doncic being a great player in the NBA. I mean, obviously he's been really accomplished. Uh, but just to me, like you look at that team and it's like, okay, they had played no defense. They were by far the worst defensive team in the league by, I think like their defensive rating was like maybe three points worse than the Cavs. They were second worst. What do you mean? Do they're, they're one, they're one away from being in the finals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously during regular season, they no, turned it up. Of course, of course. I, I was being a jerk. <laughs> uh, but I mean, you look at that team and it's like, okay, they have nothing defensively. And it's like, Booker's not that great of a defender either. To me, it's like, and he also made some strides as a playmaker. I mean, again, I'm not saying like you don't need multiple ball handlers, multiple playmakers, but like to me, it's like, okay, you already have three guys where it's like they kind of want the ball, they kind of need the ball in Warren. I'm not saying like you should make a decision based off of like those guys being there, uh, specifically Warren and Jackson, but like to me, you look at that team and it's like, okay, if you add Jaron Jackson, like then you, you're going to solve that center spot. Like there's not going to be a lot of guys that like come around like that can slide their feet and protect the rim and shoot threes. And like to me, it's just like, I don't, I don't really buy this, the idea that he doesn't have like some super high ceiling. Like 
to me, it's like he's one of the guys that was hidden in college basketball because, you know, obviously at a different level, a lot of teams, a lot more teams are able to get away with playing these two big guys. So they're running Nick Ward and then Miles Bridges at the three. And it's like, you know, he did well at that position. He did fine. But it's like eh, when the court's more spread, like he he put he showed some some like real ability to put the ball on the floor and go to his left drive and like he's already got the shot so like i don't know what i've seen like even even if though it's been small sample in certain things like maybe end of game situations like seeing him like cross up and like hit a three like kind of thing like i think he's a guy like that has a lot more to show that we're not necessarily seeing or that we didn't necessarily see at michigan state Michigan State is not exactly known for letting their guys just flourish and be themselves. They have to fit the team, you know? So that's why when we think of Michigan State right now, the number one player that pops into my, well, to my head at least is Draymond Green, who maybe Miles Bridges is more Draymond Green. But Jaron Jackson, he's a guy who almost got held back, you could say, at Michigan State. With the skill set that he seems to have, You know, he didn't get just let out to go play ball. Like some of these guys, uh, like DeAndre Ayton may have been able to do. DeAndre Ayton was just throwing the ball, you know? He was a guy in Arizona. They're giving the ball, be bigger, be stronger than everybody else, and, and do what you got to do to score like 20 points. Again, I'm pretty sure he averaged around 20 points. Jackson, you see that he only averaged 10 points, and it can make you skeptical. Like, can this guy score by himself? Maybe he just wasn't given that opportunity. I think a very realistic comp for Jaron Jackson is Clint Capella. And if you see what Clint Capella's done for the Houston Rockets, that sounds like a pretty nice pick for me. Uh, but one more guy I want to get your thoughts on. and the Before, reason... before we move on from Jackson, I, oh, yeah. I, this is my guy. I got to go in on him. Do it. But uh, To me, I'll go with the Draymond comparison, and I'll say, hot take, Jaron Jackson Jr. can be Draymond Green with the elite three-point shooting. He can, be an, he can be a defensive player of the year candidate and also be just draining threes, not the type of guy you can leave alone at the three-point line. So I think I think defensive player of the year. I've heard, you know, other people say this also is not like, not that maybe exactly, but what I'm about to say is that I think he's. It's very possible that it's in within the realm of outcomes that he becomes a defensive player of the year type of guy. And then when you combine that with the three, you know, I have alluded to. I think he has a little bit more to show in terms of like what he can do one on one. But you see, like the game, like especially with big men, it's like, can you play in the pick and roll, pick and pop? Like, can you make, can you do those things? Can you shoot the ball? Like, it's not so much as like, like I comped him to like Garnett, but like obviously the big, like, except big difference being like, okay, Garnett is like playing in an era where it's like a lot of post-ups and he's like having a lot of ISO ball. And then like, by the time he gets to the Celtics, they're still playing big lineups with like Perkins at the five, at least a good portion of the time. But like, he's more of like a, get the ball and move it, set a screen, get the ball, you know, like hit, hit a shot, like not having the ball in his hands, like for an extended period of time. So I think these guys that can make something happen and make it happen quick, as opposed to like, Oh, like I'm going to have the ball and like pound the air out of it. And like, so on, like, so like, I don't know. I just, to me, like, there's not really all these guys at the top, even like Doncic, like to me, they're like question marks to me. I just like, it's to me, it's a lot easier to project Jackson as like this guy who can do like basically everything that you want from the center position. I've been hearing this kicked around for Jaron Jackson and Muhammad Bamba. What do you think of the quote Rudy Gobert with a jump shot comp? Yeah. So in my profile of him, I kind of like specifically avoided Gobert just because that's like obviously been the most uh but I mean you can't you can't really avoid it though. I think, you know, I just I saw what was it today or yesterday they said about he had like a three he had this ridiculous uh 
number on his on his three quarters sp- uh, court sprint was like better than all these guards like Westbrook and Wade and, and so on. And you go down the list that he was just like sprinting the floor faster than these guys. He was a guy that I was really high on, probably way too high on in the beginning of the year. I mean, I, to me, it's just like he's so intimidating. It's like if he if he gets to the point where he can like really slide his feet. Like, I mean, we've obviously Gobert is amazing, but like the question is like with him, like when he gets out onto the perimeter, you know, like is he, he couldn't really stay with Harden. I mean, not that anybody really can, but is Rudy Gobert going to be doing pirouettes on the perimeter? Yeah. Yeah. So, (laughs) so is Bamba going to be, uh, shout out to Stepien and, uh, Jay-Z Majlis had a really good article, uh, kind of influenced my thinking on, on Bamba and question being like, is he going to be able to like cover this like space and like recover like from long distances, like at the three playing at the three point line, recovering back to the, all the way back to the rim. Like, I think it's possible. I think, you know, obviously working with Drew Hanlon and, and he's been working on, I'm sure he's been working on his movement and stuff. If he gets to the point where he can really slide his feet like really well and like cover cover that ground, obviously his wingspan is ridiculous. I mean, I guess like the, the like insane like high end comp that I threw out for him was like Bill Russell, just like because I feel like he just has like this like ability where he could just like you look up and like all of a sudden he's just like the scariest defensive player that you've ever like. Like one thing I said in the, in the profile was like, okay, when this guy is covering you on an inbounds play, you're sitting there, you're questioning like, what did you do to like, why were you why were you born into this life like? what kind of hell is this that like you're that you have to throw an inbounds pass around this guy or over this guy? It's like, why? Uh, so, I mean, I think there's plenty of, look, I, I can see the appeal for taking him. And at the same time, again, like I just think all these big guys will see, you know, we'll see how much the narrative proves to be true, whether it's Bamba or who about high upside, you know, high floor or whatever, what proves to be true. Cause a lot of times we throw that stuff around and it's like, you know, it's just a guess. And it means nothing in the end. That's correct. Uh, and the last guy I want to talk to you about, and Gabe, I really want to have you back when we, once we get closer to this NBA draft because I could I can go on this all day, and we're already going pretty deep into this pod. But I do want to ask you about one more guy, and that is – I don't like. I don't know. I see all these things. Like, I'm a big ring, the Ringer fan. I, I read their NBA draft thing with Kevin O'Connor, Charks, and Danny Chow. I think it's fantastic. But they they call him one of the most polarizing people in the draft, and I get that. And I do get that a lot of people really do like what he can bring to the table. And obviously, the shooting is so amazing. As a Knicks fan, and as a guy who sees Trey Young linked to the Knicks a lot, I kind of don't want anything to do with it. I don't know where you land at all about Trey Young, but give me a minute or two on what you think of Trey Young, the NBA player. Oh man, uh, yeah, I'll sell you Trey Young in a minute. Okay. Uh, definitely, I'm, please. I would love to be flipped on this, but I've been a little <laughs> nervous. I've been a little bit pushing back on that. Or I'll try to sell him to you. Yeah, I mean, I think you put him in a pick and roll with Porzingis. I'll watch that. I'll watch that any day of the week. I mean. Maybe he's going to be great. Maybe he's not. But I mean, I think, you know, a guy like him, as much skill as he's shown, there's nobody in the history of basketball that I know of that's like been like putting like, I mean, putting the ball in from as far as him. Like, I mean, I'm just saying Curry was like not not doing things that Trey Young was, you know, doing as a freshman, like by any stretch, like even at the end of his career at Davidson, he was not like he was playing a lot off the ball and like just the stuff that he's doing on the ball and like, I don't know who knows if it's going to, if he's going to be able to do this against longer guys and the, and 
and whatnot. But I think it's where are the Knicks are seven or eight. I forget. Uh, nine. Eight. Nine. Yeah. Oof. Long day, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if he's there at nine, I mean, what? Uh, who? Who else is your option? I. I'm not saying there's no other good options. I'm just saying that, you know, for for what he could be, that's ridiculous in terms of like him slipping to the ninth pick. Okay, so I don't disagree with anything you just said, and and I should have maybe been more clear of why I don't like him with the Knicks. Being a New Yorker, being a Knicks fan my whole life, there's a extra level of hype that comes with being a New York Knick. Maybe it's just because it's in my face, but I feel like it's true around the league. The Steph Curry comp is very prevalent for Trey Young. I don't think that's fair to him. I don't think that's fair to Steph. I get it, and I know why. I know why it's a thing. But I don't think it's fair to a prospect because even Steph Curry took multiple years in the NBA to become what we know uh, uh, of him today. That marriage of Madison Square Garden, the New York media, and Trey Young with this college hype, it just doesn't sit well with me. And the main reason why I'm pushing back on that is less about basketball and more about Knicks, the Knicks and Knicks fans unable to wait for somebody to become great. And I would rather take a guy like Mikel Bridges, who does not project to even be an all-star, just kind of projects to be a very good bench player or a decent to to, uh, to plus starter. I would rather have him, a wing who wants to play defense, who is 6'7 with a longer wingspan, who can shoot the three and fill a very big need uh, at wing, a guy who can do a little bit of everything. That's kind of how I feel about it. I don't hate Trey Young's game. I hate him for the Knicks, if that makes sense. I hear you. I don't. I don't necessarily. Well, I guess maybe only thing I just would. Th- I think is like, you see the preparation that he puts in. To me, like his body of work, his like you know his routine, the way he goes about training for for ba- training basketball and like everything he does. Like, I'm not so worried about like him like on a big stage. Like to me, it's like this is what this guy does. He so I mean maybe you know he's not going to be like a force on defense. That's for sure. He's going to have to be hidden. No doubt about that. Uh, I don't, I, you know, I think that's obviously the big concern and that's why, you know, a guy like Mikhail Bridges could be, could end up definitely being better than him, certainly within the realm of outcomes. To me, it's just like with that upside at that pick with, and what he could be, I like, I, that, I don't know, just to me, that wouldn't be the reason I would pass on him. To me, I feel like he's like a big stage kind of guy and like, you know, all the preparation that he's put in, I, I, I feel like he's a guy that that can play in any arena, and it's not gonna like you know, it's not gonna be like some moment. It's like it, you know, maybe the other players, you know, maybe the length and, and the and the new you know the next level will be too much for him, and he won't and he won't end up figuring it out. And yeah, you make a good point, Knicks fans, but I think all fans really can be very impatient. So yeah, yeah. I I see your point. I see your point. I just think you know, if there's a guy where it's like. I'm not really worried about like the big stage being a thing. I think it's him. And to your point, it is not an accident that this guy averaged 30 and 10 in college. So I definitely, I definitely hear you. And you know, it's become a thing to kind of watch Steph Curry even warm up for a game, or when you get those rare Instagram clips of him practicing. It's just amazing to watch, and that is why the comparison is there because you get the same thing with Trey Young. Even you know the videos that circulated from his pro day the other day. It's amazing to watch, and the quick trigger, the quick release, it's spectacular, and he clearly does have an eye for passing lanes as well. So I, I hear you, but there's just something inside of me, like my inner uh, pessimist of being a Knicks fan is like, no, 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 no. <laughs> 
But maybe, just maybe, we'll be looking back in six to ten years and say, we passed. Oh, we're not passed. We missed the next Steph Curry yet again. I, I don't know if he'll definitely fall to nine, but we shall see. Gabe, this has been a lot of fun. Like I said, I would love to have you back when we get closer to the NBA draft, talk about even more of these guys. Um, how'd you enjoy your first SBNY podcast, man? Hey, man, this was awesome. Thanks so much. I would love to, I would love to do it again. Absolutely, man. Anytime. It was a blast. Uh, again, G. Allen, what was it, 1136? 1123. Damn, what did I say 36? Ele- G. Allen, 1123 on Twitter. Uh, numbers don't matter. Math doesn't matter. Come on. That's a good point. And like I said, people are going to be clicking on your name because we'll tweet it out from Swarplug NYC. Anyway, so there you go. It's all good. Gabe, it was a pleasure. Read him at the Rotowire and the Lottery Mafia. Uh, also, check out his book, Around the League in 80 Days, which he uh, wrote with his old man. That's fantastic. Gabe, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you.